Good morning. Our passage today is Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 24. In your pew Bibles, that's page 178. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts had melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, when the Lord gives us the lamb, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And then she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given us all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. 
This is God's word. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray as we spend time looking through this passage. Father, we just ask, Lord, for Your Spirit's work in us now, Lord, to hear from You. To understand this passage, why this occurred. This is a, a true story. And Lord, a part of Your overall big story. And it has incredible application for us as well, Lord. But mostly, Lord, it, it teaches us something about You. What kind of a good and great God You are. So encourage us with that knowledge this morning. Fill our hearts, Lord, with the hope that You alone can give. And Lord, let us look to Rahab, this woman of faith, and the example that she is to us, Lord, of what faith looks like and the encouragement that she is to us of what You do for those whom You loved. Just encourage us with Your Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series this week. We're going to spend the next six weeks looking at some of the women of the faith. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I really want to state up front that as we, as we do this, uh, just as we spend any time looking at people in the Bible, uh, there are some amazing people that God has given us uh, these, these testimonies of uh, that we can look to and we can see uh, not that they're some kind of extraordinary super people, but that they're just normal people like you and me, but they have a big God. And so the story is, a, is about them for sure. There's, there's heroes that we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks, but, but the real story is about God uh, and just what kind of an incredibly good and gracious and powerful and merciful God we have and how He loves ordinary people uh, and turns us into, transforms us into extraordinary stories of His grace. Uh, and so that's what this is. I'm excited about Rahab kind of starting off. As I was considering just a, a kind of a short series looking at some of the women in the Bible, uh, there's far more than six, although I'm just doing a six-week series. And I was, I was trying to just kind of sort through, like if I'm going to focus on six uh, right now, who, who should I focus uh, on? What, what, what six women should we take a look at? And, uh, and Rahab um, is one that just, her story excites me. Uh, because again, I, I think all of us can find ourselves in this story and see how God loved her uh, and be encouraged that God loves us in a similar way. So, uh, would you uh, just, uh, let me ask you this question. I, I think um, the big thing that was striking me on as I was studying Rahab's life, this question just coming kept coming back to my mind, and it was, do you ever feel outside of the reach of grace? And I want you to really ask yourself that question. Do you ever feel outside of the reach of grace? And I think the answer to that question is for all of us that it's, it is true about us at, at, at various times. And for some of us, it, it, it may be true all the time. Uh, and it, it, we, can, we can answer that question with 
as Christians with this knowledge that I should never actually feel outside of the reach of grace because I know theologically that God's grace is undeserved. Uh, I can't earn that. And yet at the same time, I think we can feel it. And feel it maybe a lot. I think it's one of the most crippling beliefs for humanity. Not just for non-Christians, but for Christians. To, to, to be able to acknowledge that God's grace is shown to His own is one thing, but to believe it on a daily basis that it, it's actually applied to me is a different thing. And that's why I was excited to look at Rahab's story. Because if, if you're wrestling at all, ever, with the, the notion that you're outside of the reach of God's grace, I think you can look to a woman like Rahab and see God's grace in her life and know that there's no place that the grace of God can't reach. Consider Rahab. Um, I don't know how much you know about Rahab, but, uh, but there's, there's a few things here that I'll give you just as background. So we're in Joshua here looking at her. Joshua chapter 2. If you've been around here for long enough, you know we went through the book of Exodus not too long ago. So this is, this is sort of the, the sequel to the Exodus account. So God's people have been delivered out of Egypt. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years under Moses' leadership. Moses has passed away and now God is going to actually let them into what He's promised them this whole time. That they would be given a land. The promised land of God. This land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua, now their new leader, after Moses has passed away, Joshua is going to, to lead them into occupy this land. But it's not going to be an easy walk into the park to occupy the land. The land is already occupied. And it's occupied by various groups of people, all of whom are uh, enemies of the Israelites because they're enemies of God. There's, they're sinful people. There's, they're, there's a wicked people and lots of different groups of these peoples that are already in this land. And so Rahab, we're introduced here in Joshua chapter 2, is one of them. Okay, she is a Gentile. Uh, so that's the first. If you're, if you're going to talk about can the grace of God reach me, and if you look at Rahab, you can say there's three strikes against her right off the bat in terms of her being an obvious candidate for God to love, for God's grace to reach. And the first one is that she was a Gentile. She was without the advantages as a Gentile of Israel. It's not that God has this disdain for Gentiles. Praise God for that. Most of us are Gentiles and His grace has reached us, right? But there's something about being a Gentile that puts us at a disadvantage. And, uh, and the, the Scriptures talk about that. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 brings this up. He says this. He says, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He says, actually a lot. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews had been given direct word from God about his, a revelation of who He is. And a promise, too, of what He would do. And it was given specifically to them. They were the recipients of the oracles of God. Rahab and all the other Gentiles at that time had none of that. So she's already at a disadvantage. She has no direct knowledge of God or, or direct promises from God that would pertain to her at all. Apostle Paul continues in Romans 9 about the Israelites. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. To them belong the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. 
And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there's an advantage, especially in the Old Testament, to being an Israelite. She was not an Israelite. She's a Gentile. That's the first strike. The second strike is that she was an Amorite. All right. So I mentioned there's lots of different groups of people who were occupying the land of Canaan. Uh, the Amor- Amorites were one of those. You've probably heard of many others. They all have long, difficult to pronounce names, right? The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Amorites. They were one among many. And all of them were, again, a, a wicked people in the eyes of God. And all of them were about to experience the judgment of God against their sin. Israel coming in to occupy this land was a a mission, not only a blessing for them, but a judgment from God on the sinners who were there. They were going to be destroyed by a holy God in in a just act of His righteous judgment. The Amorites, however, which Rahab was one, were particularly singled out by God as wicked. So among wicked peoples, the Amorites were were particularly wicked. Uh, and when we look at the call of God on Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 15, I'll put this one verse up there. God is saying to Abraham that at one point his, his offspring are going to go back and occupy the land that he was currently in. But he, God says it's going to be a while. They're going to have to go into Egypt. They're going to be there for a long time. And they're going to come back. And one of the reasons why God gives for this length of time was in verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is saying that my judgment is going to be poured out on the people in that land, and He singles out this particular group and saying, I'm waiting on them. Their sin has not yet blossomed to the point at which my judgment is going to come. Which is, a, uh, I think, a depiction of God's mercy there but also a clear indication that the Amorites were on his particular list. All right, Again, Rahab is one of them. Strike two. And then the third thing that we see in the text here is that Rahab was a prostitute. So here's a woman who's a Gentile. Here's a woman who's an Amorite who also happens to be a prostitute, meaning that here's someone who has a hard life Here's someone who lives a sinful life. Here's someone even amongst her own society of wicked people would be considered marginalized and particularly worthless. Prostitutes are never given a high place in society, are they? They're always sort of at the bottom of the ladder. So here's someone even amongst her own wicked people who would have been despised by society. So you've got strike three and the point of all this being if anyone if anyone was outside of the reach or seemed to be beyond the reach of grace, you'd think it might be Rahab. But here's the good news. As we begin the book of Joshua here, this is chapter 2, God's judgment again ready to be poured out on the sinful inhabitants of Canaan, we see that God's first act is not one of judgment, but His first act amongst those people is a move of rescue and redemption and mercy. And Rahab is the recipient of that. So can I just encourage you this morning, if you're doubting whether you're beyond 
the reach of the grace of God, and you're checking off in your own mind all of the strikes that may be against you this morning, hear this. Hear this. God's first act, when judgment was deserved and expected, at least in this life, was one of rescue and redemption and mercy. Let's look at our first point this morning. I have five of them. They'll be quick ones, but I have five this morning. And the first point is this. God always comes for and rescues His own. Look back at the text, and I want you to look in verse 1. It's significant. Joshua the son of Nun sent two, two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Okay, Why is this a significant verse? Well, first of all, it's, it's significant because Joshua is sending spies into all of the land and, and particularly wants to focus in on Jericho. And the question that you could ask, if you know anything about the history of the Israelite people and their entrance into Canaan, you could ask this question, why send spies? Didn't you already do that? And the answer is yes, they had already done that. Moses had done that. He had sent in spies. He had already checked out the land. They knew what was there. They knew Jericho, right? They knew, in fact, not only did they know Joshua, who had given this order for spies to go, was one of the ones who had already gone. Joshua had not just a, a knowledge of what was there, he had a first-hand knowledge of what was there. And yet we're told here that he sent these spies into the land, and I believe that he did that on the direction of God, just as Moses had done so, by the direction of God. And so we can ask the question, why? And why, why the specific mention of Jericho? Again, this Amorite city which happened to be the dwelling place of Rahab. And I think that's the reason. At the end of the verse, I think we're given God's purpose for why spies were sent in there at all. Because Rahab was there. And it reminds me, as, I'm, as, I'm, as I consider that verse and I read that, and you get the sense that, that they had to do this, even though they didn't really have to do this. And it reminds me of the story of Jesus going into Samaria and in having the encounter with the Samaritan woman. We're told in the text there that Jesus had to go that way into Samaria to get to the, de the final destination where He was headed. But, but anybody with geographical knowledge of Israel at that time can tell you that He didn't have to go that way. There were other routes that could have gone around Samaria. And, and for good reason, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans at all. They would have avoided Samaritans at all costs. They would not have traveled through Samaria to get where they wanted to go. And yet we're told Jesus had to. And you go, why had to? There's more than one road. And the, the answer to that question, I think, lies in the fact that He encountered this particular woman. And I think it's, a, it's, it's telling us that the had to was related to God's purpose of this encounter. He had to go there because He had to have this conversation with this Samaritan woman who had to receive the good news of the Gospel and the mercy of God. It was a purpose of God. He had a reason. He had a mission that included one of His own. And I read this the same way. They didn't have to go do this, but they did it and specifically were sent to Jericho to do that. And the answer at the end of that verse, because Rahab was there, I think is it. God was sending people after 
to rescue and redeem one of his own. He had already marked out Rahab as his daughter. And therefore, they had to go. They had to go. There was a missional purpose of God in this interaction. God always comes for and rescues His own. And so consider that in your own life this morning. Maybe you've already kind of gone through that list of of checks and reasons why God's grace should never have come to you or never will come to you. And just know this, if God has His eyes set on you as one of His own, He will go anywhere and everywhere to pursue you because that's the kind of God we serve. He always rescues His own. Even in the last place, you would look as a human for God to be at work. He's at work here. Let me give you the second point because it's related. It's not only does He come and rescue His own, but two, God is sovereign over your sinful past. He's sovereign over your sinful past. And I would add this, that all things then work together for your good. If you are one whom God has set His sights upon, and I'm I'm thinking of Romans, and we'll quote it a little bit later, but but it says there that all who are called according to His purpose, He works all things for their good. Which means that your past, even your sinful past, is a part of God's sovereign plan of pursuing you and drawing you to Himself. He's sovereign over your past. If if you didn't ask this question, I'll be shocked. One of the big questions that arises from this text would, why would godly men first go to the house of a prostitute? Did that, did that just kind of like strike you as odd? These, these Israelites sent by, by Joshua under the authority of God to go in and spy out the land, and the first thing they do is they go to a, a brothel. That seems weird, right? Like if, if we were to send out missionaries, from our church to a foreign land, and we got back one of their, their newsletters right off the bat and they said, hey, we've arrived and we've taken up lodging in the local brothel. We might question their wisdom, right? We might question our ordination of them. Did we send the wrong people? Right? So that, if that's not coming to your mind, I'd be surprised, right? Now, you know, here's the thing. As we look at the text, there's nothing here to suggest at all that these Jewish spies had any kind of immoral thoughts, and certainly not that they did any kind of immoral behavior here. But rather, we can understand there's a strategic reason for them going to this particular house. And here it is. Rahab, again, as a prostitute, would have been accustomed to, and her neighbors would have been accustomed to, receiving all kinds of strange men at all kinds of hours of the day and night all the time. Right? So if these two spies are trying to come in and sort of be incognito, undetected amongst the enemy city that they've just infiltrated, a strategic place to go is to walk into a house where nobody's going to think twice about who just walked in there. Right? So I think that's a significant part of why they went there. Uh, Rahab would have, in her profession, been used to keeping things discreet. She's not sharing information with others about who showed up and what their business was. Uh, so again, that would have been to their advantage. But I, I can think of another reason, and this goes back to the purpose of God. Okay, the, 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 This point, that God is sovereign over your sinful past. Look at verse 10. She says something to them as they come into her home. She says, 
We have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, right? How your God dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And, and we've heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So she's heard things about God's work already in and through the Israelite people. And I asked this question, how had she heard that? How had she heard that? And this, this answer sort of came to mind for me. Um, I would guess if you asked a police officer, and I'm guessing this because I watch Law and Order and shows like that from time to time. If you were to ask a police officer, uh, hey, if you want to get the word on the street, who are you going to ask? I'm guessing the answer would be if you want the word on the street, you go to the people who live on the street and you talk to them, right? And so here is, is someone who would have been receiving government officials, soldiers, all kinds of men who were coming in and were sharing a bed with her for the night. And for whatever reason, for lots of reasons, Johns tend to tell prostitutes all kinds of things that they might not otherwise say. And she's hearing all this stuff. And she's in a unique place to hear all that stuff. She had a lot of information. And information was precisely what these spies were after, right? Now, keep this in mind. God is a big God. And a sovereign God who works in mysterious ways. And He's accomplishing His rescue plan for His beloved Rahab. So as you consider even your own past this morning and the circumstances that led to maybe your own salvation, can you identify that it's sometimes in your darkest days, in your darkest circumstances, that God uses those times to be most profitable in leading you to Christ? Doesn't He do that? Maybe you're in the midst of dark days now. So if you are, hear this. I hope you'll hear this this morning. God is not absent in those times when you think He must be far away from me. He must be so far from me. He doesn't want to, He doesn't even want to look upon me. No, God uses those dark days oftentimes as the moments in which He reaches in and grabs a hold of us. And if Rahab had not been a prostitute, if she had not had that dark past, she probably would not have had the kind of information that these spies were seeking or the kind of home that would have been a strategic place for them to take up lodging. Prostitution, we could say, would seem like a, a sure path towards condemnation for this woman. And yet, that it seems was the path by which God used it to accomplish His plan of rescue. Isn't that amazing? He's sovereign over our sinful past. And in her case, I think used the very specific elements of that in order to accomplish His goal of reaching her and saving her for Himself. I mentioned Romans 8 earlier. I'll put it up on the screen. Romans 8 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Listen, God's grace reaches deep dark places. And that gives me encouragement. 
Right? He can use my, even my greatest sin as a catalyst for His mercy in my life. That gives me hope as I consider not only my own life, but I consider the testimonies of so many of us in this room. Yeah? We, 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 we've all had opportunity to hear testimonies from others in this room and others in the church broadly where, where you just go, why and how did God save a wretch like me? And yet, that's exactly what God does. And it gives me hope then for those who I know around us in our own community who are without Christ this morning. Sometimes it's discouraging to, to, to see the, the people around us who are, who are so blinded by the world and, and so hostile towards Jesus and think, how could God do something in a life like that? And then we're reminded, no, God does something like that in every life He touches because that's, that's the story of every human being. We have a God who gives us hope that He works in the darkest of circumstances. How did He do that with Rahab? What's well, our third point this morning? It's that Rahab heard. She didn't just hear though. She believed. Right? We already looked at verse 10. We saw that she'd heard what God was doing in and through the Hebrew people. But I, I look at verse 8 and 9 and I find them very compelling. Look back at them. It says, before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Here's what that tells me as I look at that. It's likely that many people in Jericho knew something about the Hebrew God. They're hearing stories. She's saying all of our hearts are melting. They're aware of this God, right? But the text makes pretty clear that Rahab was the only one who believed in him. They heard and they were afraid. She heard and she believed. She said, I know your God's going to do this, right? I know. There's this confidence that she has in that. And, and, and there's not a sense of fear in that confidence. There's a desire then to ask to be a part of it, right? I know. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of God. And I think this is what's happening here. Rahab's statement here is a statement of faith in response to hearing God's words and God's actions here. And I say that with confidence because the New Testament confirms it. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of the hall of faith, we call it. We see Rahab is mentioned in that text. Verse 31, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So here, Rahab is given credit among the heroes of faith because her faith was a saving faith. It was a saving faith. This was her testimony of conversion. And James in the New Testament also mentions Rahab's faith. And in his account, we get hard evidence of that transforming power behind her faith. Listen to what he says. I'll put it on the screen as well. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? What's he saying here? He talks about her justification by faith and by saying that she was justified by her works, 
He's not saying that she or we are saved by our works, but rather that your works, the things that you do, demonstrate the validity and the genuine nature of saving faith. If you've really got faith and saving faith, transforming faith, it's going to change the way you live. And, and, and Rahab's actions here demonstrate a bold faith. I mean, a really bold faith. Let's consider this for a minute. We can learn a lot from her about what genuine saving faith looks like. If you look back at verse 2, just consider the, the position that she was in this night that she's hiding these spies. Verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So the government's aware, right? Enemies have infiltrated us. The king is aware. Verse 3, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. So they're knocking at her door, saying, bring out these men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they've come to search out the land. They're saying, look, these guys are a danger to us. Hand them over. Right? But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But, in reality, she brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. What has she done? She's just done something really gutsy, right? She's done something really risky here. Let's examine it. First of all, she's entrusted her whole life into the, the hands of God. If the king and his henchmen show up to your door and are saying, you're harboring a threat to us, hand them over, and you say, well, yeah, I hid them. I'm, I'm, I'm in collusion with them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a collaborator. What are they going to do? Right? They're not just going to arrest you. Trust me. <laughs> They're going to kill you. right? And she had to know this. Of course she knew this. And yet, her faith and her trust in God was such that she'd say, I'll put my life in your hands. I know, I know that my life is in your hands because I could die for this. But I'll trust you, God. That's the first thing. The second thing is that she repented of her past and her identity with a sinful people. Okay? She repudiated her past and her people. She betrayed them. She turned her back on them in order to identify with God, the God of the Israelites in this case. And that's exactly what repentance is. Repentance means to do a 180 degree turn, to turn your back on your sinful past and head now in the direction towards righteousness in Christ. That's repentance. This is what she's doing. I, I don't, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I know that my life is on the line here, but I'm aligning over here. And that's the, that's the third thing we can look at here is not only did she repudiate her own past and people, but she identified with God's people. Right? She's attaching herself with the people of God. She took her place among them. Look at verse 12 again. She says, Now then, please swear to me to the, to the spies by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brother and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. I, I want to identify with you. I'll trust you and your God. I'll place my life in your hands. And I'm trusting in what? Deliverance from death. I'm trusting in, in, in your God for my life. 
And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. They've responded in kind, right? You're identifying with us, we'll identify with you. Our life for yours. You've risked your life for us, we'll risk ours for you. Right? It's a beautiful picture there of unity. And they say, don't tell this business of ours. When the Lord gives us our, your land, we'll deal kindly with you. So we see this repudiation. And in verse 21, she says, very simply, according to your words, so be it. I'll take my place among you. Listen, that's exactly what it looks like to come to faith in Christ. Those three things, right? To entrust our whole life into God's hands apart from you, God. I am, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead woman, but I'm entrusting myself to you. And in doing so, I am repudiating my past and my identity with the people of this world. And I'm attaching myself by faith in you to your people. I'm taking my place among your own God. That's what faith in Jesus looks like. And this is exactly what she has done. And she does that with confidence because the fourth point is this, is that our God graciously saves sinful people. Her faith in God was was confident and well-founded because she's trusting in a God who saves sinful people like her, like you, like me. I want to highlight a very important part of this story. It has to do with the scarlet cord. Interesting detail in the story, right? Look at verse 18. The spy said to her, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. What is the significance of the scarlet cord? Well, I think it's, you know, there's been all kinds of speculation in, in, in commentaries and scholars over the years. Uh, and most of them, I think, are getting to the right place here. But let's just look at this most simply. These Israelites had just come out of the Exodus, right, with Moses. They've, they've, they've been delivered from Egypt. They've been told now in this generation uh, what their grandparents had experienced when God sent the plagues to destroy Egypt to exercise His judgment there. And, and there was this one significant scene that they were to remember every single year, and it was the Passover scene, right? And the Passover scene looked just like this, didn't it? If they were to take the blood of a lamb and they were to put that red blood, that scarlet blood over the doorpost of their home, as long as they were safe within the confines of the home with the scarlet blood covering, the judgment of God would pass over them and go outside to all who did not have the covering of the blood of the Lamb of God, right? And so, as they give her these very similar instructions, they're, they're thinking, have this same sign. And they didn't ask her to take the blood of a lamb, but they, they asked her to take something that represented it. A scarlet colored, scarlet's important, cord, and hang it in your window. And likewise, all of the inhabitants of this home with that scarlet covering will be passed over when the judgment comes. We'll see to it. You'll be safe. It's a picture of the Passover. 
And then we, we can take the quick, easy jump and say, well, what's the Passover about? The Passover is a picture that points to Jesus. Because the ultimate Passover was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And when His blood was shed for us at the cross, when we are covered by the blood of Christ, by faith, the judgment of God passes over us. We are counted righteous and safe under the covering of the Lamb of God. This is the Gospel in Rahab's life. Rahab was saved by the Gospel. She was covered by the blood. And God graciously saves sinful people. You and me in the exact same way. Right? We trust our life to Him. We believe upon Him. And we have confidence in our belief because we're covered by the sure sign of the scarlet blood of Jesus who was slain for us and covers us so that the judgment of God passes us over. Praise God. And Rahab experienced this. Mind you, the Gentile Amorite prostitute Rahab experienced this because God graciously saves sinners. And not only that, but finally this. Not just did He save her from her sinful past, but fifthly, our God redeems lives for His glory. And in this one, we've got to leave this text and move back to the New Testament and see that again, God doesn't just save His people from something, but He saves us to something. And Rahab's story has an incredible legacy for the glory of God. We mentioned already that Rahab was mentioned in Hebrews in the New Testament. She was mentioned in James in the New Testament. There's a third mention of Rahab in the New Testament, and it comes in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Let me turn there for you up on the screen. You can look at it. And, and, and here's what, what's being said here is, is Matthew is introducing Jesus. He's introducing Jesus to a, a Jewish audience and he's saying, look, this one that we've been promised, this Messiah who would come and sit on the throne of the King, David. He would be in the line of David. Let me show you how Jesus has a genealogy that reaches all the way back. Verse 1. This book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we get to verse 5 and as he's walking down the list of Jesus' ancestors, he says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Ruth was a grandmother to David. And Ruth was married to Boaz, who was the son of Rahab. We're going to look at Ruth next week, by the way, and Boaz. They're in this line. She's a hero of the faith. But know that when we get there and we spend next Sunday looking at the life of Ruth, she was married to Rahab's son who was a great-grandmother to David the king in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So if you're, if you're Rahab that day, could you just imagine for a moment that these guys come knocking on your door and they're saying, look, we're, we, need, we need shelter for the night. Yeah, they're honest with her. We're from, we're from Israel. We're coming in. We're spying out your land. There's going to be destruction here. Uh, but based on your profession of faith and your assistance of us, we will we'll protect you and save you. Could you imagine if they would have been able to say to her, and guess what? We know something about you. You don't know this yet, but you're going to have a son and that line's going to continue and, 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 and 
from that line is going to come the king of this nation and from him will come the ultimate savior. God himself is going to be birthed through a woman through the line that, that goes back to you, Rahab. Wait, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not one of you. I'm an, I'm an Amorite. You guys hate us. You're, you're going to come kill us. I'm a prostitute. God, I know your God is holy and what I do is everything against what God says. And how could God do that in my life? And, and could you imagine if they could have told her what she would have felt? Just the amazing grace, right? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's Rahab's story. You know, I opened the sermon by asking if you ever feel like you're out of the reach of God's grace. And I hope this morning that in looking at the life of Rahab, you've been encouraged to see how God can work in your life too. No one would have expected it in Rahab's life. No one expects it in yours. You don't. <laughs> but He does. He does. No matter who you are or what you've done, God always comes for and rescues His own. God is sovereign over your sinful past. And He works all things for your good according to His purposes. Faith comes by hearing and believing in the Word of God. And I would ask you this morning, why not you? Listen, there is a scarlet cord available to you this morning in the blood of Jesus Christ. And know that God graciously saves sinners and redeems their lives for His glory. God makes all things new. All things new in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, can I just tell you, that's your story. That's your story. I just talked about you. I just talked about me, right? Be encouraged. This is what God has done for all whom He has rescued and redeemed for Himself. Be encouraged. You're going to be tempted to doubt that this week. You're going to be tempted at times over, over the coming days to think that you've somehow done something. And it, it might be something significant. It might be something insignificant. It might be as simple as just, well, I haven't been to church for a couple weeks. Maybe God's upset with me and I can't even go back there. I mean, we just get so bought into the dumb lies like that, don't we? And just be reminded that God is working and has worked to redeem and rescue you for Himself. Not according to what you've deserved, but simply according to His mercy. That's your story. Stick with it. And if you're not a Christian this morning, can I just ask this? Why not trust a good and gracious God who sent His Son to redeem you no matter what your past or present sin? Why not trust in a God like that? You don't want to share the fate of the citizens of Jericho. You don't. Judgment was coming for them. And here's the bad news. Outside of Christ, you already do share that fate. We all do outside of Christ. And maybe sometimes the reason why we're, we're sort of comfortable in that is because we look around and we see the walls of our city. We see the walls of the, of the secular city around us. Whatever walls we've built up and, and sort of take refuge in and we think, these walls are pretty good. The, the citizens of Jericho had every reason to believe that the Israelites were going to have a really hard time getting in. They had big walls. Right? And yet, 
deep down inside, Rahab admits that all of them, despite their confidence in their walls, were feeling fear. And that their hearts were melting because they knew, they knew that Judgment Day was coming. They knew. So I want to ask you again to consider Rahab who only had a limited knowledge of God. She didn't have all the advantages of the Israelites, all of the oracles of God. She just had a little knowledge, but it was enough to believe in. And you, 21st century American you, have access to far more than this. You have access to the law and the Gospel. And the law tells you who God is, what His holiness looks like, what His expectations are, and reveals to you that you are indeed in violation of His holy principle. You have that knowledge. It's available. And you also have the Gospel, which is the good news that Jesus Christ came to do something about it. To step in and live the life that you could not live before God and die the death that you deserved for failing to live that life and exchanging His perfection and His death for you. That it would count for us. That's what it means that His blood was shed to cover. He took your punishment. But He rose again on the third day to prove that He had the power to overcome the death. And that's available to you. God's merciful. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has come to take away the sins of the world. So I ask you, why live any longer under the just wrath of God? Why not believe on Christ? And turn from your sinful past and take your place among the people of God. You say, will God come and rescue me? Would He send somebody to, to, to deliver that news to me? Well, listen, you're here. You've been listening to me for 40 minutes. I think He already did. So trust Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this incredible story of Your goodness and Your grace in the life of Rahab. Thank You, Lord, that, that You've given us these examples throughout Scripture that that we can look at and we can say, I can put myself in her shoes. I can see my own story there. And in that, Lord, we can experience, just as she did, Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy. So Lord, encourage Your people this morning that this is our story. That You are our God, this saving, gracious God. No matter what we've done. And Lord, there are people in this room who don't yet know that, Lord, I just pray that this morning would be the day that You show them that grace reaches into deep, dark places and that Jesus is greater than our sin. So thank You for this good Word. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for being a Father to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.